This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on frequency 9625 kHz, that is on the 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa. You can also find us on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumele Lezondi with One Lenzinti, and I'm also with Musibudi Makura and Amanda Machaka. Your top stories. As Zimbabwe prepares for another election in 2018, President Robin Mugabe and opposition leader Morgan Changarai Morgan Changarai's health have become a cause for concern for citizens. The U.S. has lifted a range of economic sanctions it imposed on Sudan two decades ago. And in sports, Rugby World Cup board commends South Africa as the host of the 2023 Rugby World Cup, rather recommends South Africa. On a Lentzinzi has your news. Thank you, Spoo. Kenya's opposition leader, Ela Odinga, has called on his supporters to continue with peaceful protests. He has been addressing supporters following President Uhuru Kenyatta's victory in last week's election rerun. Odinga told his supporters that Kenyatta's election as president was unconstitutional. We, NASA, are resolute that this sham election cannot and will not be allowed to stand. We will not allow two megalomaniacs to destroy the dream of freedom and democracy that generations have sacrificed and worked so hard for. We shall see to it that we conduct a free, fair and credible presidential election as ordered by the Supreme Court. Odinga has outlined his plan of action. National resistance campaign. As you announced last week, NASA has two organs, the Coalition's Parliamentary Party, PP, and the National Resistance Movement. The resistance movement shall be responsible for implementing a vigorous, positive political action program that includes economic boycotts, peaceful processions, picketing, and other legitimate forms of protest. If there is no justice for the people, let there be no peace for the government. A planned gathering of international youth organized by the Egyptian government has been slammed on its own social media hashtag. Dozens of posts criticize leaders in the country for their poor human rights record and campaigns against free speech. Billed as the World Youth Forum under the patronage of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the event is scheduled for November 4th to the 10th in the Red Sea city of Sham al-Sheikh. It encourages people to use the hashtag and hashtag we need to talk for English and Arabic posts. Twitter has been alert with criticism. Users have been posting images of Egyptian police beating and chasing down youths during Al-Sisi's reign and images of youngsters incarcerated for political stances. One such case mentioned a student jailed for three years for posting a doctorate image of Al-Sisi wearing Mickey Mouse ears. 
South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, says it is pushing ahead with its bid to ensure that President Jacob Zuma does not appoint the judge that will preside over a commission of inquiry into state capture. The party made its submission to the Pretoria High Court on the way forward with regards to former public protector Tulima Donzela's state of capture report and its recommendations. President Jacob Zuma and opposition parties, the DA, COBE, UDM and EFF, have been given until end of day to make the submissions to the court on the matter. Last week, President Jacob Zuma took Madonzela's recommendation that he establish a commission of inquiry into the matter headed up by a judge selected by Chief Justice Mohueng Mohueng on a review to the court. Chairperson of the DA's Federal Council, James Alpha. We believe that the only logical step that the court uh, must now take is to order that a commission of inquiry be established under a judge appointed by the Chief Justice of South Africa and that President uh, Zuma should merely uh, appoint that commission. Uh, we believe that his uh, actions in the last stages of this application have been nothing less than abuse of court processes and for that reason we are arguing in our court paper that he should be made personally liable for the costs of this action. Lastly, Morocco is hosting a regional meeting on migration aimed at developing an African agenda on the issue. The three-day meeting is gathering representatives of African states, the United Nations, the African Union, NGOs and academics. Moroccan Minister of Foreign Affairs Nasser Borita says that the set of informal sessions aims to open the dialogue between the diplomats and the civil society. Since March, Morocco's King Mohammed VI has been in charge of coordinating the migration issue within the the African Union. The agenda on migration will be formed into a roadmap ahead of the next AU summit scheduled in January 2018. Channel African News, I am Onilin Sensei. This is Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Onele. Your time is 17.06 Central African time. Let's start in Kenya, where the leader of the country's opposition, Raila Odinga, has described the just-concluded repeat presidential election as a sham. Odinga also accused the country's electoral commission of failing to conduct a credible election. Meanwhile, Uhuru Kenyatta, the winner of the election, which was boycotted by Odinga, has verbally attacked the veteran opposition chief for issuing provocative remarks against the country's ruling party. Jubilee. James Shimanyula reports. Season, the Kenyan opposition leader Raila Odinga has announced the formation of what he describes as a people's assembly which will comprise varying classes of people. People's assembly is the vehicle through which we will exercise the solemn duty of restoring democracy, constitutionalism and the rule of law. The people's assembly will be a broad-based forum consisting of elected leaders and the leadership of other sectors of society, in particular workers, civil society, religious leaders, women, youth, and economic interest groups. We will be announcing the date and program of the Assembly's inaugural convention in the coming days. The People's Assembly 
Deformation of the People's Assembly comes less than a week after Odinga formed a group known as National Resistance Movement, which he said will carry out resistance constitutionally. Odinga says the movement will start operating shortly alongside the protests that will be held throughout Kenya. Peaceful protest is an inalienable political right. It's one of the most important freedoms that we have secured for ourselves in our 2010 constitution. It may be important to point out that the 2010 constitution is historic in Kenya because it allows peaceful protests and picketing. During such protests, before a repeat presidential election was held in Kenya, Dozens of people lost their lives after clashes occurred between them and heavily armed security personnel. Odinga sheds light on the deaths that happened throughout the protest period. Over 60 innocent Kenyans, including children, have died needless, needless deaths and many more maimed at the hands of would-be despots seeking to impose their will on the people. A system of government where dissent is criminalized, it is called totalitarian state, will continue to assemble, demonstrate, to picket, and to present petition to public authorities as often as we choose. Kenya's opposition leader, Raila Odinga. Meanwhile, President Uhuru Kenyatta has verbally attacked Odinga for, as he put it, making provocative remarks against the ruling party Jubilee. We will not give in to obvious provocations and base invitation to the politics of darkness. But for this blessing of reason, long-suffering and passion for country, I take this opportunity to thank God. He has brought us far, and he will give us victory over darkness. And I will not tire to say so. Kenyans woke up early and peacefully to vote. On that date, they voted me, their president, without a doubt. My victory was put to test at the Supreme Court. The court did not challenge my overwhelming mandate of 54 percent that was kenyan president oro kenyatta reporting for channel africa this is james shimanyula as zimbabwe prepares for another election in 2018 president robin mugabe and opposition leader mokin changarai have their health being questioned as a cause for concern for citizens 93-year-old Mugabe is still vying for the presidency despite poor health, while Changarai is reported to be struggling with colon cancer and is yet to be to start his campaign. Ironically, Mugabe, who claims to have revamped the health delivery system, is always flying to Singapore for treatment, whereas Morgan Changarai is often flying to South Africa for treatment, causing a scare in the opposition and creating debate on the social media. More from our correspondent, Simon Ruchema. Barely 18 months ahead of the 2018 polls, Zimbabweans are faced with a difficult choice for the president as both President Robert Mugabe and Morgan Changrai are sick. At a time when 93-year-old Mugabe was expected to have come up with a successor, the nanogenarian is still vying for presidency come 2018, making it a global record. 
on one hand those in the opposition feel none other than Morgan Changrai should lead a coalition against Mugabe but the former workers union veteran is also very sick both Mugabe and Changrai are reported to be suffering from prostate and colon cancers respectively, leaving voters confused and disgruntled. As Zimbabweans are in the process of voter registration till January, scores have raised concerns over the health of their two leaders. In ZANU-PF, discussing the health of Mugabe could result in the expulsion while this in MDC led by Morgan Changrai, the trend is also the same. Only the brave who are using their social media have opened up debates over Mugabe and Changrai's health. A potential presidential candidate, Nkosana Moyo, attacked both Mugabe and Changrai over their continued grip to power despite ill health. Is this realistic? The answer is yes, it is realistic. But you also right to point to the Simba experience. But the country between when Simba ran 2008 and today is in a very different place. Let me share with you, for instance, without names, the war veterans are talking to us. They are talking to us very, very seriously because where the country is today and where it was in 2008, and the population as a whole suffering, is shifted immensely. And I think people are much more thoughtful about what options are available to them. And although, I mean, you know that we put out a, a get well message to President um, Morgan Changirai, realistically, both President Mugabe and President Changirai are unwell. Moyo, who is former Mugabe's ally and was at one point appointed cabinet minister, said if the two leaders were in a democratic society like the USA, they would not stand for elections next year. These are things that people are going to have to consider as you look into. If it was in the US, just on the basis of health alone, they would not qualify to run. They would not qualify to run. So I'm hoping that we as a population will make our own assessment in terms of where the country is today and the way it was in 2008 and what the differences are. And that will be quite thoughtful in terms of how we make that choice. But it is absolutely realistic. Nkosana Moyo claimed senior party leaders in both ZANU-PF and MDC are looking for alternatives and talking to him and his campaign team for coalition of possible takeover in the event both Mugabe and Changrai are unable to stand for 2018 polls. A lot of ZANU people and MDC people are coming to talk to us. But I mean, partly because of the coalition issues, very senior people in the opposition are talking to us. Alliance for the People's Agenda, APA leader Moyo believes his group would stay beyond his lifetime. We are setting out with a lot of conviction to change the politics of our country. So APA is here to stay beyond my lifetime. Beyond. It's going to be an institution which is based on a particular belief about how our country should be run. Not just our country, by the way. My personal view is that we must consider Zimbabwe as part of an African problem. We've got a sub-Saharan African problem. And even the way we are going to govern, we're going to be quite focused on the issue of what role Zimbabwe plays in the regional cluster of countries. So APA is here to stay in terms of answer to your first question because we believe politics has to be done differently. In Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunian Zovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digested Channel Africa One on Twitter. The U.S. has lifted a range of economic sanctions it imposed on Sudan two decades ago. Washington says the Sudanese government has made progress in issues relating to counterterrorism and human rights. The decision comes at a time when Sudan is suffering increasing debt and inflation, as well as seeing poor delivery in the fields of education and health. So will the lifting of the sanctions help revive the country? The BBC's Domio Oladipo sent this report from the capital, Khartoum. There's a strong smell of oil around this compound and it looks more like a vehicle repair yard. The main building is dark and abandoned. There's nothing really left here. But there are clear signs that this place many years ago would have been teeming with activity with staff here as they worked on sesame seeds and and other types of seeds to produce oil. It's one of the many factories across Sudan that have suffered since the U.S. sanctions were put in place. We used to have four factories. Motalib Dirar was a partner in a thriving company importing and exporting everything from textiles to edible oil. Then the trade embargoes hit. After the sanctions, there was no way to get the spare parts. No way to export, even if you can start manufacturing the goods. Everything went down. Complete or total collapse. And it's not just business that's been affected. About a half hour's drive from the center of the capital, Khartoum, Hawa Mohammed Adam is playing the keyboard, trying to recall a song by her band. She's well known as a musician, but more recently she's been a music instructor at the University of Sudan. But she hasn't been to work since last year when she was diagnosed with cancer. The devices here are substandard. In Cairo, I discovered that I did not only have one tumor, but several tumors. We, the Sudanese people, are sad, very sad indeed. Despite the fact that we have very competent doctors, we do not have devices, equipment and tools. We do not have anything. Hawa's family, friends and even fans helped raise the money for her treatment in Egypt. Now she hopes the lifting of the sanctions will mean she doesn't have to make the expensive trips to access the modern medical care she needs. It's a stark picture of how Sudan's isolation has been felt on the ground. But this country appears to have turned a corner, meeting some of the demands required for the lifting of the sanctions, and the U.S. is giving the Sudanese government the benefit of the doubt. Stephen Kutsis is the charge d'affaires in Khartoum. We want Sudan to be a partner and an ally, uh, and not an adversary uh, or or a negative force. And uh, our engagement has, has led that direction. Uh, We're very pleased that Sudan is working cooperatively uh, with its neighbors in many ways. 
Sudan's Minister of Investment, Mubarak Al-Madi, is optimistic about the role his country could play partnering with the West. He says elements within his government see the worth in this. They uh, seized the chance of the geopolitical changes in the area, the worries of the West from the illegal immigration, the worries from the, of the West from uh, terrorism. So the West and the Americans could see that Sudan could be a very uh, good stabilizing force. There are dozens of students sitting on benches and pavements around this quiet campus of the University of Khartoum. And looking around at these students, most of them look to be in their late teens or early 20s and have definitely spent most, if not all, of their lives living in a Sudan that has been under U.S. sanctions. And now that the sanctions are being lifted, I'm interested in what their thoughts are on the future for them and for their country. I am Sadak. I study here in the University of Khartoum, Faculty of Art, uh, German Department, German and English. The problem is not sanction. The problem is our government, corruption, terrorism, they are supporting, supporting terrorism. I'm Nazar and I'm studying here in the University of Khartoum, Faculty of Arts, uh, Chinese Department. Okay, those people, those people, the government people, they will use these benefits which come from the USA in order to, to improve themselves. And not the normal people's lives? No, of course no. The University of Khartoum is one of the main sources of dissent in Sudan and it wasn't long before a protest began nearby during our interview. Our government-appointed minder quickly forced the BBC team to leave the campus. It was a glimpse at the limited freedom Sudanese people have. The government here will have to prove it's committed to long-term reform if Sudan is to fully emerge from the shadows. Your time is 17.22 Central African time. Thank you very much for staying with the program. Africa's educational challenges were under the spotlight at a business forum hosted by the African Presidential Leadership Center in Johannesburg in South Africa. The forum was attended by five former African heads of states, including Ghana's John Mahama, Tanzania's Jakaki Kwete, and Nigeria's Goodluck Jonathan, amongst others. It sought to advance the conversation around Africa's educational challenges. More from the African Presidential Leadership Center co-founder Prince Etzatlamini. This forum seeks to bring public sector and private sector together. Uh, public sector being both uh, former African heads of state and captains of industry. The theme was broadly around education um, and the sub-theme which was the main focus for today was um, investments into education, into skills development, um, entrepreneurship, um, and we're very honored to have had at least seven former African heads of states that were here and pledges well over 500 million to place close to 20,000 young people into jobs over the next three years. Why was it so important for the center to just single out education? I know it's one of the challenges that we have on the continent, yes. but why education? Yeah, well, education is really the heart of the economy. You know, issues of unemployment, uh, are directly impacted by the quality outcomes of education. So if you're not educating the right young minds, you don't have a good labor force. It's a very simple equation. Um, the APLC as a center is a leadership platform. And by nature, leadership is meant to discuss challenges, opportunities, how to scale up programs. And the APLC is largely about former African heads of states coming to have intergenerational dialogues. 
with us as the younger generation who are the future leaders um, about their experiences on dealing with education, um, issues of unemployment in Africa, and of course for us to learn and equally for us to inspire them. So just how important is it to bring the public and the private sector to come together to tackle these challenges that you've just alluded to? No, it's very, very important. I think that government, we're seeing more, many African governments are unable to afford a lot of social development programs. Uh, I mentioned in my speech that, I mean, the Minister of Finance in South Africa mentioned that there's a South African government could not, this fun, last financial year, could not collect, I think, about a $51 billion amount in tax revenue that we were not able to collect. Now, 51 billion, you can imagine the number of schools, the amount of people it has to feed, and how it stretches government in, in the fiscus. So what that means is that government cannot afford to do things anymore. They need private sector, and it's initiative like ours, with private sector leading, to say, government, we want to hold your hand. And it's a simple concept of private-public partnerships. And, and I think that's why in this APLC Business Forum, we seek to have pledges and to have very specific targeted model where people are not coming to talk but they're here to say i'm here to donate 100 million in 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 education to in tourism and hospitality or agriculture and i think it's an achievement for us that we've launched at least a 500 million fund today that will be able to do that did you mention that you are hoping to assist 20,000 students get onto the job market how are you hoping to do that well, so it's simple. The, the, we've got private sector and government partners that have got development programs. So to be able to achieve that, you need growth. You need someone who's going to say, my agriculture business is growing and it needs 2,000 jobs. So my hotel, I'm launching 10 new hotels. They need new people. So what happened today is exactly that. You had seven private sector companies that are growing in wildlife tourism in various sectors, agriculture, aviation that are going to be absorbing young people so they will train them first and then get them and place them into jobs. You could just tell us what's happening this evening as well as tomorrow. So this evening Fundi who's our lead sponsor is going to be hosting a gala event with uh, educators. So you've got a lot of the vice chancellors in South Africa that are coming and we have um, a keynote I think from UNISA uh, the vice chancellor at UNISA and they'll be obviously interacting with the former African heads of state and um, tomorrow so that's a, what we call the Fundi Educational Forum. Then tomorrow is the actual former roundtable, presidential roundtable, which is focused largely on policy-related matters. Um, and obviously that's politics, you know, and these are former heads of state. So they'll be advising about what to do and how to deal with the challenge of education. There was African Presidential Leadership Center co-founder Prince Tzatlamini speaking to Ntlantla Matlangu. The South African Human Rights Commission, or SAHRC, earlier today briefed the media on the outcomes of the mediation session between the African Diaspora Forum and Mayor of the City of Johannesburg, Mayor Herman Mashaba, over claims of xenophobia. In February this year, the Commission received a complaint from the Forum alleging that Mashaba had made comments that were xenophobic and that could possibly fuel xenophobic attacks. The organization alleged that Mashaba stated that foreign nationals are responsible for criminal in the city of Johannesburg. That undocumented foreign nationals compound criminality and make it difficult for law enforcement to perform their duties and that foreign nationals were holding the country to ransom. Through the mediation of the Human Rights Commission, the mayor and the Diaspora Forum signed a settlement agreement. Joining us on the, joining us on the line earlier to talk about this is Mark Ogbafo, who is the chairperson of the African Diaspora Forum. In December 2016, during the 100 days of uh, 
the mayor's office, I made a report. And during this report, we understood what he was saying. He was referring to migrants who are undocumented are criminals. That, uh, as you put it, uh, migrants are, say that migrants are hauled to the city into ransom, which make, make it uh, very difficult for authorities to run the city properly, and uh, so on and so forth. So we, February, we approached the South African Human Rights Commission to investigate this matter because we heard uh, this, uh, we didn't, uh, didn't meet with the, the mayor, we heard from the media. So during the process of parties, the African Diaspora Forum, together with the, the mayor, uh, agreed that uh, we should uh, resolve this matter amicably, and, uh, but uh, we had to have uh, a settlement agreement. This uh, was um, later last week, and this week we agreed to meet and make it a historical moment. We want to uh, make sure that migrants who are living here in South Africa, and uh, particularly living in the city of Johannesburg, are not living in fear. Those who want to contribute to the economy of the city should come forward. If it's happened that one or two migrants is involved in any, in any criminal activity, instead of wasting time talking about his nationality, we should isolate him and put him in the, to, to jail. The mayor is asking us to be his friend. But let's like take a look at the impact of the mayor's utterances. What sort of uh, impact have they had on just uh, the way that uh, the uh, foreign nationals would live their day-to-day lives? Uh, look, uh, people were panicking. In December, when these utterances were made, people were mi- many, many mi- migrants were panicking. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know if uh, they have to leave South Africa. They were calling us and telling us that South Africa is becoming more and more hostile to them. They wanted to know if uh, we advised them to leave or not. So people were living in fear. And uh, I think uh, that's why we, we say that today is a, a very important day for us. And uh, to the rest, the thousands of migrants who are expecting uh, to live here, who chose South Africa and uh, the city of Johannesburg as their second home. They w- we want to dissipate uh, their, their fear. We want to say, okay, uh, you can live here, you can uh, run your small business, and also we are even taking government to court to give you documentation if you are undocumented. That's, that's what will happen next few days. And uh, the city of Johannesburg will uh, lead the process. We, we will be the friend of the city in, in, in court. Uh, to ask government because uh, it, it seems that no one has an idea of how many migrants are in, this, in, 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 uh, in South Africa. When you ask authorities at uh, the Department of Home Affairs, you ask them how many migrants you have, they're, they're telling you, oh, there are many, and uh, no one gives you the statistic of people who are living in the country. So, in fact, many authorities are misleading the public. They're just using the name of migrant to hide away for uh, from service delivery. So we are very happy that uh, the city is really leading the process, will be the, the friend of the city uh, in court to ask government to provide people with documentation. In any country in our continent, when you go, people know how to count visitors. It's only South Africa who, who, who doesn't know how to count visitors, which is very, very disturbing because South Africa is uh, the most uh, the, the developed country in our continent.
That is Mark Buffer, chairperson of the African Diaspora Forum, talking to Zikona Miso there. It's time for a news headlines. Yes, on Alenzinzi. Kenya's opposition leader, Raila Odinga, calls on his supporters to continue with peaceful protests. South Africans' main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, pushes ahead with its bid to ensure that President Jacob Zuma does not appoint the judge that will preside over a commission of inquiry into state capture. And Morocco is hosting a regional meeting on migration aimed at developing an African agenda on the issue. Channel African News, I am Onelensinsi. Thanks, Onele. 1732 Central African time. Now, the Democratic Republic of Congo is facing one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world with 7.7 million people suffering from serious food insecurity. The World Food Programme Executive Director has just concluded a four-day visit to the country. David Beasley said WFP needs 135 million US dollars to address the situation in the Kasai region of the next uh, for the next eight months and another 136 million US dollars for the next six months in the rest of the DRC. Here's Jean-Noël Bamwanze. The four-day mission was an opportunity for the executive director of the World Food Program to meet with the millions of displaced people in both the Kasai region and the North Kivu province. David Beasley visited both Chikapa and Karanga in the Kasai region that's in this country's central part before flying to the North Kivu province in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And indeed, the WFP executive director David Beasley says what he realized in terms of food insecurity is very concerning. There's so much distraction around the world today because of wars like Iraq, Syria, Yemen, South Sudan, and we're facing one of the worst humanitarian crises around the world right here at DRC. 7.7 million people are severely food insecure. In the Kasai region alone, 3.2 million people are severely food insecure. Two million children alone are severe acute malnourished and two million in addition to that are moderately acute malnourished. There are 600,000 children throughout the DRC that are on the brink of starvation. It is critical that we have access, it's critical that we have funds, and it's critical that the government and all parties involved in the conflicts immediately. Coming to the government involvement, the WFP executive director has exchanged with the DRC authorities, including both President Joseph Kabila and Prime Minister Bruno Chibala. All of them agreed people here are victims of food insecurity due to different conflicts and indeed WFP boss David Beasley believes that the conversation was very frank since the government has given commitment and assurance to cooperate for a solution. We discussed that this, it's critical that the government cooperate so that we can resolve these conflicts and end hunger. The government gave us at all levels including the governors that we met with in the provinces. They gave us the commitment and the assurances that they would cooperate with us. We are not here to take sides. We are here to help innocent victims of conflict and hopefully bring back hope to the children who have been displaced, the families that have been harmed. 
with the hopes that dreams can be fulfilled in a nation that has so much opportunity. Let me state very clearly that while we need a lot of money and we need it now, we are facing obstacles because there is donor fatigue. There are donors that are very concerned about giving more money here. I believe if we can show cooperative spirit and end much of this conflict, we'll see the donors in the international community step forward and do what's necessary. And as the most hit region is currently the Kasai, that's indeed where the World Food Program plans to direct more funds to try and save more lives. Only 1% of the funding requirements has been received up to now, according to WFP Executive Director David Beasley. At this stage of the game, uh, based on our scaling up intentions over the next few months, over the next eight months, we need $135 million just for the Kasai region alone. Over the next six months for DRC, in addition to that, we need $139 million over the next six months. At this stage for the Kasai region, we have received 1% of the funding requirements. Inside the World Food Program, we have borrowed within our own financial structure $25 million to begin a scale up with the hopes that the international community will respond immediately. The millions of displaced people in the Kasai region have been forced out of their villages by insecurity and violence caused by militiamen and the traditional leader Kamuina Sapu, while those in the North Kivu province continue to flee due to the presence of dozens of armed groups in that eastern part of the DRC. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The South African Agricultural Research Council Biotechnology Platform is hosting the fifth African Goat Improvement Network Workshop. The general objective of the African Goat Improvement Network uh, 5 is to develop a structure for the African Goat Improvement Network to facilitate the network as a cross-section of varied expertise and experience to impact publication of research and best practices, direct farmer training or information sharing and opportunities for capacity building and training among research, international development and government policy arenas. Gebert Ngube of the South African Research Council and PhD student at the University of KwaZulu-Natal explains. My name is Gebert Ngube. I am based here with the Agricultural Research Council Biotechnology Platform under the Animal Genomics Group working on goat genomics and genetics. I'm currently registered for my PhD in University of KwaZulu-Natal. I'm doing PhD genetics. Yeah. The Agen 5 is the African Goat Improvement Network. So what we do is that we come together it's people from different countries. So we work mainly on the improvement of livestock, focusing on goats. And then the workshop, it's an annual workshop going to different countries each year. And this year, South Africa is very blessed and fortunate to be the host of the Agen 5 for 2017. So the Agen 5 also has what we call community-based breeding programs, which we engage the community. So us, the scientists, we come together and do some studies on the goals and see how we can genetically improve the goals that we have. And then we come together with the Agen and discuss the community-based breeding programs on how we can help the communities, especially the smallholder communities, to help improve their livelihoods and their livestock so that they can use 
their livestock to help themselves in, with issues of food security and then also be able to live from the income that they get from the goats. So what is it that in particular you are improving when it comes to the goats? We are focusing mainly on growth performance and meat quality. Because when you look at the a flock, some of them they are growing very slow, some of them they are growing very fast. And in South Africa as a whole, we have about four registered meat breeds, which is the South African Boer, Kalahari, the Savannah. And then we also have um, the uncharacterized village goats. So we want to work with the uncharacterized village goats because the high-performing goat in South Africa is the South African boer. And when we look into the history of the South African boer, for it to become a high performer, they used the uncharacterized village goats to develop it over the years. So that's what we want to do. We don't want to develop another South African boer, but then we want to use what the communities have, which is their uncharacterized village goats, and help them to improve the growth performance so that they can have bigger breeds that are not so genetically modified. So we want to teach them to naturally perform fast through selection methods. So talking about uh, the growth when it comes to these issues of of genes, Mm. how do you identify the level of growth of some of these goats with regards to their genes as to this one is for breeding and the other one is, would be for meat or whatever purposes. Okay, so what we do, we go around and then we sample, we collect blood from different goats and then our most recent study, we also collected meat samples from the animals. So we take that blood and then the meat samples and we do some genetic analysis. So we've done what we call principal component analysis, which is an analysis that shows you the purity of the animal together with admixture. So you take the genetics and then you like you run the analysis and then it will show you on the computer when you do your visualization how pure the animal is. So that's the first thing that we look at, the purity of the animal. But then we also take into consideration that the purity of the breed is a combination of a lot of things. So we look at that. So we use the blood, we use DNA, we use RNA sequence analysis. And then we have the machines here at the ARC biotechnology platform that help us to go deeper into those studies. And then recently we also ran a trial to see that if the goats are here, because there are other questions that when we say the SA boer is a high performer, is it the issue of nutrition or environment or like what really goes into it because nutrition also plays a role. So we collected all the different types of goats and then we raise them under the same conditions to can see that is it only genetics or nutrition also plays a role. So when we also put them in the same controlled environments the SA boy is still a high performer so we see that okay it's not only nutrition it's also genetics so we are also going deeper into the genetic profiles of the South African boer to see and compare it with the other breeds to see that okay there's what we call gene expression analysis where some genes are switched on and highly expressed and then some genes are switched off and what happens is that the animal naturally switches on or off the genes based on where it is 
the village goats are focused mostly on survival food is not readily available it's hot there's drought they walk long distances to go and get food but when you look at the south african boar that is raised in a commercial farm food is taken to them they are just around the area they have a lot of food so they have more time to focus on growing as compared to the village goats that are focused more on survival so we also see that probably the village goats are selecting mostly for survival so they prefer to survive than to grow big so those are the things that we are looking at that okay which genes are highly expressed with the commercial goats and then which genes are not so highly expressed and then from there we will come together again with discussions and try to see how we can go back to retrain the village goat to also add the focus on growth because now what we looked at was that some of the people they open for the goats very late to go and forage so we said okay let's test that if they open for them very early and then they get time to walk to where they are going and they are able to rest and even still get at least five hours of feeding and then coming back so that gives them time to rest and then even to go to that stage of also expressing their growth genes. Now you spoke about this uh, gene locking. What is it? The gene, like the switching on and Mm, off of the genes. Okay, so we see, okay, when we look at the RNA structure, which is the ribonuclease acid, we have three types, which is the messenger RNA, the transfer and the transfer RNA, and the ribosomal RNA. So the messenger RNA is like, you know, when you send a child to the shop, go and do this. So the messenger RNA is that one that tells the genes what to do. That, okay, go, like now we are focusing on survival, so we need adapted to express adaptation genes. So that's what we are looking at. And that's where the messaging of how the growth or how the animal should behave comes from. So we look at that because it's the one that says, okay, now you don't need to survive, you will grow anyway. So it now it sends more messages of growth and then the, the genes get switched on for growth. And then now we see more muscle doubling, which means that the animal gets bigger and it's good news for the farmer because then you get to sell a very fat animal. That's Gerbert Ngube of the South African Agricultural Research Council and PhD student at the University of KwaZulu-Natal talking to Wandi Le Kalipa. It is now time for your economic news. Here's Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. The latest unemployment figures in South Africa show an economy failing to create jobs. There are now 6.2 million South Africans without work in the country. States SA says the official employment rate has remained unchanged for the third quarter of this year. The largest decline in jobs was recorded in Free State, Limpopo and Mpumalanga provinces. Badidli Hutla is from States SA. Labor markets, uh, quarter three, uh, we know that uh, there are 37 million people who are in the age group 15 to 64, uh, and 22 million of them are in the labor force, 15 million uh, are not economically active, they are house husbands, housewives, uh, 
16.2 million are employed um, and 6.2 million are unemployed. Year-on-year -year employment uh, mimics and follows the growth in the GDP. Uh, there is a, a, some relationship between uh, these uh, this numbers. South Africa's Finance Minister Malusi Kikaba says ESCOM's request for higher-than-necessary tariffs is uncalled for. The power utility has applied to energy regulator Nessa for a 13.9% tariff increase to its direct customers from April 1, 2018. But Kikaba says the request is far too steep for consumers who are already battling tough economic conditions. I think ESCOM must incentivize South Africans by improving its governance, by employing properly qualified executive leaders uh, from CF, CEO to CFO and all other executive directors and stabilizing its finances. <laughs> to ask South Africans to pay more tariff when the economy is uh, subdued, I think would serve as a perverse incentive. The tariff application uh, that they are asking for is, is far higher than um, they ought to get. Nigeria's Axis Bank plans to pursue organic growth in Ghana rather than mergers or acquisitions. This after the central bank raised the minimum capital requirement for lenders in the West African country. Ghana's central bank in September raised the minimum capital required for banks threefold to 92 million U.S. dollars as part of measures to ensure financial stability. Lenders have until the end of 2018 to comply. Four leading manufacturers of milk formulas are duly boosting profits by exploiting parents' understandable desire to give the best possible nutrition to their babies. This was revealed in a new investigation report by the Netherlands-based Changing Markets Foundation and Partners. The report reviewed more than 400 infant milks for babies under 12 months old from the top global manufacturers Nestle, Danone, Amid, Johnson, Nutrition and Abbott. It found that instead of nutritional science, companies are basing their selling strategies on market research and consumer preferences. Nusa Ebensik from A Changing Markets Foundation explains. So we looked at the four biggest infant formula manufacturers, which are Nestle, Danone, Mead Johnson and Abbott, and we looked at how they're selling their products at 14 different markets around the world, which includes Asia, like China, Hong Kong, Indonesia, South Africa, in Africa, Europe, and United States. So these companies often claim that they're science-based, that behind their products is like decades of nutritional research and science. But actually, when you look at their products, there is no same product at the market anywhere. So basically... Each product in all the different countries have some variations, which puts their claims that they are science-based under question. In our financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 14.10 South African rand, 10.46 Botswana Pula, and 9.99 Zambian Kwacha. It's at 75 pence to the British pound and 86 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,275 and platinum at $918 an ounce, while the price of Brent crude oil is at $60.90 a barrel. That's the latest business news. Thank you, Amanda. Your sports news now.
Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. South Africa's hopes of hosting the 2023 Rugby World Cup received a significant boost after the country was recommended as the preferred host nation. This announcement was made by World Rugby after the global rugby governing body received an independent recommendation as to which country, South Africa, France or Ireland, should host the 2023 tournament. Now, the trio of independent companies and World Rugby's technical committee spent the past three months analysing the commercial and technical strengths of the respective bids. The recommendation is, however, only a guide to World Rugby's general council members whose vote on the 15th of November will determine the winning bidder. Now, South Africa lost host to the tournament back in 1995 for France as recently as 2007, while Ireland has never hosted the event. On to local football news, Bidvets Vets attacker Gabo Dino Mohango has been suspended for 10 games by the South African Premier Soccer League Disciplinary Committee after being found guilty of spitting during a PSL fixture. Now the PSL DC released its ruling after Vets and Mohango were charged with misconduct following incidents which took place during the club's match against Amazulu on the 20th of September. Now during that game, Mohango was found to have spat at uh, Amazulu midfielder Michael Morton. Mahango will now be suspended for 10 matches, of which four have been suspended. On to cricket news, Proteus head coach Otis Gibson says he's pleased with his team's start of his coaching Cherna in South Africa following series white washes across all three formats of the game against Bangladesh at home. Now Gibson also confirmed that he's close to finalising his new coaching support staff after inheriting predecessor Russell Domingo's backroom staff. He confirms that the current bowling coach Shaw Youngerfeld will be the first to be relieved of his duties. There's quite likely to be new faces. I'm going to do the fast bowling myself. I can say that already because I've spoken to Charles and I've spoken to Cricket South Africa, so they're aware of that. So I'm going to take on the responsibility of the fast bowling myself. There are quite likely to be a few other new faces. I've given Cricket South Africa my sort of wish list, if you like, and people that I think could come in and add value. I've done over the last five weeks whilst I've been playing, whilst the game's been going on, I've been talking to various different people around the country to get opinions on other coaches. What I've tried to do is to use most of the coaches that I work in South Africa Africa, but for the most part, try and, and use the franchise system in a way that if I leave tomorrow, there's somebody that could take on the job and, and take the team forward as well. Although unable to divulge further details, the West Indian confirmed that he has put together names for four positions with the hope of two more specialists. He adds that his recommendations are locally and internationally based. There's names at the moment. Obviously, Cricket South Africa now has to make that happen. At the moment, they're just names of people that I think could do a, a job with the team, the job that I want them to do with the team. And they're just names, some from overseas, some are local as well. Size-wise, um, cricket is batting, bowling and fielding. So I'll do the and then there'll be a batting coach, an assistant coach, a fielding coach, and a spin bowling coach. So, I mean, is that four plus myself? And having spoken to Charles as well, you know, that's always been my specialism as a coach, obviously, fast bowling. And he fully understands that. Also, in discussion with Cricket South Africa about a couple of other key positions that I think would make a real difference to, to coaching in this country. 
And finally, Britain's Olympic and world champion Mo Farah has split from long-term coach Alberto Salazar. Now, Farah has cited the need to be back home to London with his family as the reason of the split. Farah, who moved to Portland, USA back in 2011 to work with distance guru Salazar, says the decision had nothing to do with the doping allegations surrounding the coach, which he has since denied. Now, back in February, Salazar denied administering banned supplements to his athletes and issued a firm rebuttal of what he said were false allegations against him made by a British newspaper. Now the Sunday Times reported that American Salazar had used prohibited infusions of supplements to improve the performance of his runners. Well the Zaya Sports News at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.56 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. Our top stories. As Zimbabwe prepares for another election in 2018, President Robin Mugabe and opposition leader Morgan Changarai's health have become cause for concern. The U.S. has lifted a range of economic sanctions it imposed on Sudan two decades ago. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, as Pumela Lezondi, producer Lebo Munamoholu, technical producer Catherine Malik, and the rest of the team. Thanks for joining us. It's info at channelafrica.co.za on email, channelafrica1 on Twitter. Bye bye.